Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to our ASX subsector series, where we try to dig into the sectors that make up the market and, more importantly, what makes them tick and what makes them maybe a good investment. Today, we're talking about the sector that absolutely had a bonzer year in 2022. It was up by 38%. Maybe you can guess, but if not, we have very special guest, Gaurav Sodhi, who is Deputy Head of Research and Intelligent Investor and a bit of an aficionado in this sector. Welcome to Big Swinging Stocks, and I'm so excited to talk to you about energy today. Thanks, Alex. It's nice to be here. I think it's one of those sectors that is a bit mysterious. There's a lot of big names. I think it's very interesting to sort of look at what's happening in that sector, and I'm actually just really excited to dig into all of that. But before we get into brass tacks, let's talk a little bit about you. We always ask our guests how they got into investing. Investing was somewhat of an accident for me. A lot of people grow up wanting to be investors and they're passionate about it from a young age. For me, it was um, I was sitting in New Zealand with a friend of mine and we were having breakfast. I was reading the newspaper and I saw an interview with a famous Australian investor, uh, Ken Nielsen. And in that interview, he said, um, investing and, and platinum in general, platinum was the name of his, his firm, he said, Investing in general and in platinum specifically, it's a job for outsiders. It's a non-conformist gig that if you just think the same as everyone else, you're not going to do very well. And I read that and um, it really connected with me because when I was at university at the time, I had just started working and what I really didn't want was to sit down, go to, wear a tie every day, go to a job that I hated quietly uh, drown in my agony on a daily basis. And what I loved about investing is that it's the only profession I can think of where you're rewarded for being different, where you're rewarded for thinking independently, and where you're rewarded for not being conformist. Now, every other sphere of life, you're expected to follow the rules, you're expected to fit in, and there's a mold that you have to get into. And investing, if you do that, you're going to be completely mediocre and average. And to do well, you have to do something different. And, and that appealed to me. Um, I thought it matched my personality and um, I, I really wanted to do it. So I actually made a concerted effort, knowing very little about the investing process, I made a concerted effort to turn my career towards that path. And it took me a few years, but I got there eventually, Alex. So when you were sitting in that cafe and you just started working, yeah. where were you working at the time? I had an economics background and I was working at a think tank. And so we were doing economics research on developing countries, thinking about the problems in developing countries and how we could solve some of the big problems and, you know, writing papers and doing ground research. And I traveled around a fair bit in, around the Pacific and, and looking at countries working with the World Bank. So, you know, there was a connection between economics and investment, but it's actually the more I learned, the more I realized how strenuous and strained that connection really was. And the stuff I thought I knew, I really didn't. If I knew what I knew now, I would have never thought that I could have done. And I think that's the power of ignorance sometimes early on. It, it lets you do things. It gives you a confidence to, to take steps that if you knew better, you probably wouldn't take. Obviously, research has been part of your makeup from a very young age, even you know going into a think tank to start with. But let's talk about where that lead research has led you. We love data at Self-Wealth as well. And one of the things that we have observed is a real inflow of capital into the likes of Woodside, 
Whitehaven Coal. In fact, Whitehaven's up 250% for the year, which is enormous. So as a research specialist, tell us what is going on. That's an enormous jump. Alex, I hope you'll forgive um, my little boast I'm about to provide you with here, but we, we bought Whitehaven at a dollar when Woodside oh. fell at oh 15 God. bucks. We were ah. there. Energy is and, and commodities generally is such a wonderful space because it there are so many opportunities because prices rise by too much on the upside and they fall too much on the downside. It's what we call a cyclical industry where um, there are times when it's roaring and there's times when it's asleep. And uh, the task of the investor is really to um, is, is to buy it when prices are low, when the markets are forlorn and no one wants to touch it. And you've got to remember to take profits and sell it when enthusiasm is high and it looks like it can't get any better. It's particularly true of, of energy because we all know about this enormous energy transition that's happening. It's one of humanity's great struggles um, and it could be one of our great triumphs. You know, we've got to get off these fossil fuels and, um, and into more sustainable energy forms. The greatest minds in the world are working on it. Governments are working on it. Capital is chasing it. But with all these efforts into renewables, traditional forms of energy are being sorely neglected. And that was something we saw very, very early on. And that was the impetus for the investment um, into those energy sectors, into those traditional energy sectors. Yes, they have to move on, but they're still really, really important in providing energy probably for the next 20 or 30 years. And at the moment, you cannot open a coal mine anywhere in the world, really. Banks won't give you finance for it, insurances, insurance companies won't insure it, you can't get government approvals for it. So the supply is limited, but the demand is actually not falling away. So you've got a case where, you know, usually when prices rise, it's a signal for producers to get more product into the market. But at the moment, those signals aren't being followed because of all the things I just said, you can't get finance, can't get approval. And, and that's a wonderful setup for an investor. You've got a case where Demand is actually steady or even rising and supply cannot catch up. And that's what's driven the underlying commodity prices, coal in particular, um, but also oil, LNG and gas. That's what's driven those to such high levels. It's actually been um, several years of underinvestment. Now, we all know about the war in the Ukraine and, and that's played a part. But I actually think that's a smaller part of this bull run than what many people believe. And, and I think it's already played out. You know, uh, prices were rising well before the Russian invasion and the Russian invasion provided an extra rocket boost to it, but it was certainly not responsible for the boom. And I think the boom has a little bit longer to run because all those things we've talked about, the, the lack of supply, the demand still being there for these traditional fossil fuels, um, as long as that's the case, uh, then I think we're going to see years of higher than average commodity prices in the energy sector. I think it's going to be really challenging, though, for investors to work out there's the competing thematics of the transition itself and investing in clean energies because that's seen as the long-term play, but then equally timing it right. You know, what is the right price to get in on? And then how do you avoid what we're all prone to, the hubris of knowing when to get out? When is the bull run over? What do you say to investors who are sort of in that awkward spot of wanting to make sure they don't miss out on, frankly, the boomers cashing in on all their investments in coal, 
but equally knowing that realistically we have to fund the transition because, you know, it's not like we can go without energy until we are 100% renewable. That, that's the, the central conflict. That is such a difficult question and maybe the most important one. So buying these stocks and identifying when they were cheap was actually really easy. It's the selling and, and harvesting your profits. That's the hard part because we know these resources have a finite life now and it's going to end faster than we thought maybe five or six years ago. So you've got to factor that in. Um, look, I, I don't have a great answer for it, Alex. I think we've just got to take this on a case-by-case basis and, and look at valuations really, really carefully. I will say that energy and commodities generally, these are not areas of the market that you can sit on and hold indefinitely. You know, this is not CSL or or another high quality business that you can you can just hold for decades or years. You want to be buying them when prices are, are, are attractive and you want to sell them when prices are high. And, and you've got to have that in the back of your head, that valuation is extremely important. And so you've got to keep that um, in perspective. The killer of investor returns is competition. When someone sees that a business is making lots of money, the natural response to higher prices and high returns is for competition to come in and take advantage of that. And they add to supply, they innovate, they come up with new products. And over time, prices fall away. The challenge really is to find an industry where you're not getting a lot of capital or a lot of attention coming to it. And the problem with the energy transition as an investment is that it's attracting a lot of attention, it's attracting a lot of competition, and it's really hard to eke out good returns. And, and you, you probably see this, right? That there's, if you, if you want to invest in, an, in a green energy or alternative forms of energy, the, the actual returns aren't very good. Whereas the opposite's happening in traditional fuels, that, that because capital is fleeing, attention is running away, the returns on offer are really attractive. So that's the other dynamic we have to keep in mind. How much money, how much competition is entering the market and to trying to take advantage of high prices. Once we see more and more entrance into the market, that's a signal that it's probably time to exit. And- Do you think that for investors, that's hard if you're an at-home investor who doesn't have at their disposal a huge research and analytical unit to time that correctly? So some investors might be thinking, well, how can I play both ends of the sphere? How can I just invest in energy holistically and let a fund, maybe or an ETF, manage the distribution of getting into the right price in traditional and then transitioning that capital when they sell into renewables to kind of get that upswing as well as those technologies mature and therefore get cheaper and the returns start to flow from that investment of capital. What might you suggest to an investor who's looking to figure out and do some research? What funds would you say to look at that might give them that diversity? The first thing I'd say, Alex, is that the way I invest and the way we invest in intelligent investor is not to target specific industries or to have a particular theme that you're trying to chase. Um, and, and now that's different. That's a very personal choice. Some people do that. They do it well and they do it consistently. But for us, we're really looking for individual opportunities. And, you know, I, I didn't start the um, two years ago looking at coal and thinking, I really want to get into coal. You know, it was actually, I remember when I, when I first bought Whitehaven, I actually felt sick. I, I, you know, my stomach was churning. I felt I had, my hands were shaking and I felt awful. Not because it's a coal person, just because it was covered in debt. It's been a horrible company for years. You know, there was a risk that this thing could be a genuine zero. 
and and those are the sort of opportunities i think when you when you're looking for um, an investment you don't want to be um, you know trying to prophesize what's happening in the world i think it's important to remain humble and realize that you don't know what's happening in the future and and you could be wrong but, but what you do know is that um, prices tell you what's embedded in in the company's expectations and and when the risk reward looks attractive then then you can take a bet you know investing is really taking a series of bets and and you want to take bets that are very attractive to you so sometimes it's just individual opportunities that come around and and i think that's the way i would seek to to play all this is just look for individually mispriced bets i was going to use whitehaven as as an example you know at at a dollar it looked absolutely diabolical i mean i think the market cap at that point was about 300 million dollars and you know you can look back at the history of the business and see that when prices are high enough it can make sort of a billion dollars a year and you you're getting the whole company for sort of a third of that if you look at the numbers that they provide you every year in their annual report they will tell you the value of their assets now that's not always correct and it's not always accurate but it's a guide and at the time you know the value of the assets was worth three times the value of the entire business and and these by themselves maybe don't mean much but when you put some of these pieces together it can show you that this thing's actually going really cheap and maybe it goes bust and maybe it doesn't work that is a good bet to take and i think that's a really interesting point because sometimes we can hi- kind of hop on these macroeconomic trends especially because a lot of etfs are very differently structured to intelligent investor in, in fact they do slice the market you know, batteries, lithium, the clean energy transition, cloud as well. But I think it's interesting to look at this sector and observe those macroeconomic trends. Ukraine, you talked about scarcity, which I think is kind of novel. And I think a lot of people are thinking about that in the context of transition and also capital raising being so difficult to get for these projects. But what about what was happening in Australia that also might have had an impact on value? Um, well, the, the trends in Australia are similar to what's happening overseas. There's just been very little investment in traditional forms of energy, so gas, coal, and oil. I think I read that over the last five or six years, um, about a trillion dollars worth of investment has been cancelled in traditional energy projects. One trillion dollars. That's an awful lot of new supply that did not come online, and all that will benefit existing producers. You could see those dynamics happening. You know, in Victoria, you can't drill for gas pretty much anywhere in the state. We knew that in New South Wales, for example, starting a new coal mine was was basically impossible. And the other thing that was a real telltale was that big international businesses were selling assets for non-financial reasons. The first time I saw this was West Farmers. You know, West Farmers, of course, the owner of Bunnings, one of the biggest companies in the land, a very prestigious firm. they sold a coal mine to a smaller coal business and in their commentary they said look we're selling this even though it makes plenty of money because our investors don't want us to hold coal and they almost apologized for it and i remember reading that thinking oh that's strange and then bhp did the same thing and rio tinto did the same thing they're selling very profitable coal mines for non-financial reasons and i think as a setup that is wonderful if you can buy something of someone who's selling it for reasons that have nothing to do with money you're almost you're likely to get a really good deal and that was the first clue and you still sort of see that you still see companies selling assets off because they just can't hold them internationally i think um shell is a good example they've been selling traditional oil assets off 
and, and, and investing the proceeds into green energy, but the returns on their capital have actually fallen enormously because they're selling these really high returning assets and they're using the funds to buy low returning assets. These are, these are trends that, are, that we can see all around the world. And if you can notice this stuff, it's, it's a really good signal that some value is on offer. Mm, we come back to the point that young investors are having around this rock and a hard place, you know, short-term gains, long-term value. And businesses are probably doing this as well. I can only imagine what the debt modeling is like when your assets might have huge profits now. But what does that look like in 15 years when it's end of life and you need to sell it and there's perhaps no one to sell to because no one's, you know, using as much coal as that is. But so there's a fascinating question there around how businesses are actually really being influenced by long-term behavior, which is, I think, new. There's been a lot of, you know, a lot of short-term thinking. So this is very interesting, the pressure that clean energy is having on boards and shareholders and large institutions like surely BlackRock is appearing in these boardrooms and going, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But we've talked about the highs. Has there been some real downsides? Has there been some real losers in this space as well? If you're trying to raise money for a project, if you have a development project and you're trying to get that into production, it's been a near impossible task. And that, of course, is the bull case for the producers themselves. It's because development assets are so hard to get into production that the producers are making so much money. So yes, if you're if you're a little developer, if you've got a project you're trying to get up and running, it's been a disaster for you. You've had no benefit from the higher prices. You've got no, no real possibility of getting your asset into production. The other thing that's been happening, and this is a more recent thing, is that governments have suddenly noticed that traditional energy companies are making a whole lot of money. And so the rules are starting to change. Um, we saw Queensland late last year institute the highest royalty regime in the world on their coal assets. In New South Wales, the state government has forced coal miners to put aside some of their production and sell it to the local market. We've seen gas reservation now become a big issue along the east and the western seaboard in in Australia. And all these uh, late responses from government realise that, you know, we don't have enough energy in this country. And in fact, this is a global problem and, and they're grappling with it. They're looking for ways to solve this issue. And it's a really difficult one. I, I think, you know, I, I heard an investor say recently that, you know, AI is is really sexy and, and chat GTP is a lot of fun. And, you know, we want to all get rockets to the moon and go to Mars and, and drive our EVs. But the most fundamental problem and maybe the best opportunity we, we have right now is, is what's happening in this energy space, because the whole society has to transition. And then we have to do it while we're still pumping out a whole bunch of, of energy at the same time. It's yeah. very difficult. There's such an interesting question there around maybe we accelerated to ESG too quickly and we left this hole essentially of what the transition was actually going to look like. And there's maybe a bit of a nexus, I'd say, with technology and energy in solving that problem, retrofitting coal gas plants, finding slightly less emitting solutions to Australia's largest form of emissions is ash, a byproduct of coal production. We don't talk about that. We talk about cars and EVs and transitioning away from coal. We don't really talk about the unsexy parts of the transition. I love what you said about it potentially being our triumph or our downfall because, you know, ChatGPT still needs electricity 
to work. So <laughs> it's going to be pretty sad if we have AI and it can't even turn on. I think generally there's an underappreciation for the importance of energy, the, the core purpose of energy, what it's done to our civilization. You know, we live in these very organized and sophisticated societies and we think we've just done it with our brains. But then, in fact, you can correlate the advancement of human civilization to the discovery of energy. And this is not to glorify fossil fuels or to say they are without blame, but I think it's important to note the role that energy has played in the advancement of our species. It's been the differentiator. It's been so important. You know, the difference between now and 400 years ago is not that we have more knowledge, but our brains aren't any smarter. We've just harnessed energy. I read this study a few a little while ago, and it said that, you know, in the 1600s, the amount of energy we harnessed in a single day was the equivalent of one or two people. And the amount of energy we harness now in an average day is the equivalent to almost 100 people. If you think of yourself as one agent, you have about 100 people working behind you every day just to get you through your daily life. And, and it's really important to recognize that because once you start understanding the importance of energy, you start thinking a bit bit more, I think, seriously and cautiously about the solution. Exactly. Yeah. There's something to be said for the blue sky thinking because we, we need to find a solution to pollution. But equally, you're so right. We can't just put coal in the bin when hydrothermal and sun is what? I think it was 18% of total energy production in Australia. So I want to talk a little bit more about that because you mentioned before BHP, Rio Tinto, they're selling off assets. These assets are profit producing. And maybe to old school investors, this is a mad decision that doesn't make sense. But do you think these big blue chip energy companies are actually onto a winning play in transitioning to clean energy faster? It's hard to say. If we take Shell, for example, which I kind of mentioned, they're at the forefront of this transition. They have been a huge producer of oil and gas. And they're more recently um, turning to hydrogen and solar and to a smaller extent, wind. When you think about it, these companies just spend maybe 100 years or even longer gaining an expertise in drilling and pumping and moving oil and gas around the world. And they're coming to a new area where they have no advantage, where they have a limited knowledge base on the same playing field as any other new entrant. Now, it just makes me wonder, why not just keep doing what you're doing you know, pay high dividends and then fold. It seems quite arrogant to me to think that they can do it better than a new player who doesn't have all those old things to protect. The simple answer to that is that these guys are people with jobs. You know, management have jobs to protect. Boards want remuneration to keep going. And, and, and I think it's as simple as self-interest. But also liability, especially in Australia, increasingly director's duties are burdensome. And I, I think that's a radical idea, right? Why do you have to grow forever? Why can't you just do very well? Why not just shut up shop? And I think pressure from institutional investors going, well, you're part of our retirement portfolios. If you don't do something, maybe they're worried about all that capital leaving early because these institutions and pension funds and whatever else probably are going, well, we have equally shareholders. We have to live up to their expectations. I think it's a very challenging space for management at the moment because would the market accept that in an annual report? We're going to make a lot of money for you for as long as we can. And then in 2030, we're going to close. Well, I think the coal companies in Australia are doing exactly that. These coal miners, Whitehaven and New Hope, are probably the best examples of that. 
these guys are making free cash flow equal to about 50 to 80% of their entire market caps every year. So they'll make their entire market caps back in sort of two years or so, and they are paying it all out. They don't even have the pretense of trying to open new mines or reinvest in the business or buy copper or lithium or something else. They have very openly said, we are money machines right now and we're going to pay it all out to you. And I, I think the implied answer there is that in five or six years, they may not have much of a business left, but that's okay for investors today because they're just getting oodles of, of dividends and cash flows. It's a very novel prospect for investors to start thinking about is, you know, core and satellite of your portfolio and that not just meaning ETFs and individual stocks, but maybe short and long-term plays as well and how that factors into your risk tolerance. But I talked about how much we love data at Salesforce. One of the really interesting pieces, like nuggets that we found was one of our most traded energy stocks was Washington Sol Patterson. And some people might be like, why is that in the ASX energy sector? Can you explain their business and what they invest in and kind of what their philosophy is? Yeah, Washington is a, I think it's the second oldest listed company in Australia. They have a history going back to the early 1900s. The same family has actually been running this company for something like 40 or 50 years, maybe longer than that. I think for any investors playing at home, just you might recall we did an episode on listed investment companies, but they were the OG ETFs. So instead of a trust being listed on the stock market, they're a company and they're a company that invests. That's the whole purpose. But what's their kind of investing ethos? They've been called the um, the Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Warren Buffett's investment vehicle of Australia, because there's no real logic behind any of their individual holdings. They own, um, you know, large stake in a brickmaker. They own a large stake in a radiology business. They have a large stake in a copper mine, and in, and of course in in coal mining as well. Now, there's nothing to link those things together except that at some point over the last fifty or sixty years management has decided that these are actually interesting companies, we'll take a big stake of it. And they've held that for decades and decades and helped these companies grow. And in doing so, just piled on lots of profit and cash flow for their investors. And one of the largest holdings is a 40 odd percent stake in a coal miner called New Hope. New Hope is the miner of, of thermal coal in New South Wales. It mines some of the highest quality coal in the world and it sells into Japan and Taiwan um, and Korea, a little bit into, into China as well. And while this whole boom has been going on in coal, um, New Hope has been paying out dividends. Those dividends have been received by, by Solpats. So Solpats has been one of the largest beneficiaries of the coal boom, even though there are other investments. They own a big stake in TPG Telecom and a big stake in Brickworks. But it's really been coal over the last few years that's been powering that business along. Um, of course, the opposite was true probably about six years ago when, when coal prices were diabolically low and there was no cash coming for them. It was the other businesses that hold them up. And so that's the benefit you get out of diversification. The way you described it is actually the way to think about it. This is almost like an ETF or a managed fund that you can buy on the ASX. Intelligent Investor has, has bought this and held this in our portfolios on and off for a number of years. It's a wonderful business, one of the best managed companies in Australia. And if you're new to the share market and you don't want to do the work of buying and selling and researching, you could do a lot worse than just, just hold soul pats and, and keep it there for, for years and years because they, 
They have an unbroken streak of, I think, 50 years paying rising dividends. and Increasing dividends. Yeah. It actually reminds me a little bit, as you described it, of your investing ethos, because you're right, there doesn't really seem to be any link between the businesses except opportunity and perhaps a little bit of an offensive-defensive play, because they seem to have done quite well at playing both the cyclical part of the market. And I think they do have some perennial like bricks. We're always going to, we're always building houses and apartments. We have a huge booming population. So it's kind of a good bet, right? So I love talking about different investing styles because I think ETF and that thematic style of investing has proliferated. And it's always a good idea for investors to kind of have that challenged. And maybe it's for you and you decide to do some more research and buy into it. Or maybe it's not for completely valid reasons, but it's always good to have these perennial marketing truths tested a little bit because they can almost become just taken as fact that of course you should invest thematically when there's so many ways to skin a cat. It is such a personal thing investing. Before you even start investing your money, the first task is really to understand yourself and to understand what kind of person you are, what kind of investor you are, and that should lead you to your investing style. And it ought to be different for everyone. And you've got to find something that works for you. I love that. So We're now squarely in 2023 for anyone that's still struggling with changing the date when they write it down. 2023, everyone. What trends from 2022 are we seeing continue and what should perhaps energy investors or people really interested to learn more about this space be excited about this year? Yeah, the the course of prices often follows capital expenditure, the amount of money going into a particular industry. So it's worthwhile looking at how much money is going into these energy markets in response to super high prices, right? And you can see that oil is attracting a lot of money. Oil prices went from negative during COVID all the way up to, I think they peaked about $130 a barrel, about 80 bucks a barrel now, still well above historic trends. And those high prices have attracted capital. So there's a lot of activity going on. Rig counts have increased around the world. The number of dollars going into oil production has increased. The amount of ships involved in oil extraction has increased. So despite all the ESG concerns, oil production, I think, is going to rise. And and I think we ought to be a bit more cautious on oil prices. You know, there were were predictions of $200, $300 about oil price. There's a lot of supply on the way. I'm not quite sure those predictions will be met. Gas and LNG, uh, you know, when you have a gas field, you're really limited in the sale of that gas because you need pipelines to distribute it everywhere. So if you find a huge gas field in the middle of the ocean, it's almost worthless because you don't have access to pipelines. But if you find a gas field uh, somewhere near civilization and you have pipelines, it's worth a lot of money. So what LNG does, LNG actually takes stranded gas and it freezes it into a liquid. And by doing that, you can then transport gas on big ships all over the world and turn it back into gas and use it to heat your homes. So LNG is actually gas in a liquid form and it's done so to transport gas around the world. And there's a there's a big market for it. LNG supply has been difficult in recent years because it needs tens of billions of dollars to get LNG projects up and capital of that scale has not been forthcoming. So I still think LNG producers like Woodside, Santos, these companies are still going to face high prices for years to come. A gas projects is probably in, in the middle there. You know, there, there are some new gas developments happening, but the gas around the world and in Australia in particular seems very tight. There's been not much gas development in Australia at all. And, and I think we're going to see very high prices on the East Coast, on the West Coast of Australia for a number of years. And coal, 
Coal has been a remarkable story because, you know, before this little boom, the highest coal price ever recorded was about $160, $180 a tonne for thermal coal. And over the course of 2022, we saw coal prices reach almost $500 a tonne. So they were at levels that we've never seen before, multiples of what we've ever seen. And they're still trading at um, almost $300 a tonne. So they're almost twice the last high that we've ever seen. So they're still extremely high. And yet there has been very, very little investment in coal. All the constraints that were held holding back coal prices of the last few years continue to hold them back. I still think we're in at a stage where we're going to see high coal prices for a long time to come. Obviously, one of the things that we talked about, both as a a real benefit, a boon for investors was government regulation, ironically stifling innovation and competition and therefore driving prices and returns for investors. So, you know, of the traditional or emerging energy products, do you think government regulation is going to favour any of our traditional energy options? Energy is looking a lot more like tobacco. I mean, I mean, for a long time, even after tobacco was you know, rightly <laughs> vilified and people stopped smoking it, in, in the decades that followed all the damages and all the revelations, tobacco companies were the best performing stocks anywhere in the world. And I think energy could be very similar to that. Traditional energy, fossil fuel energy could be similar to that. We're going to tax it more. No one really wants to buy it. We're not producing any more of it. But for existing producers, I think we're going to see enormous cash flows. And as long as management is sensible with what they do with those cash flows, it could lead to just years of very high returns for shareholders. And that includes governments taxing and and quotering and doing all sorts of things. But every time the government intervenes like that, they actually impact the future supply as well. So there's a short-term hit, you know, high royalty will lead to a short-term hit, but it almost guarantees that no new supply will enter the market. And historically, that sort of intervention in any market, not just energy, you think about rent control in the US or, or price fixing in communist Russia, all that has done is lead to higher prices for longer. And I'm afraid it, uh, it's no different this time. Oh, it's been a really, really fascinating chat. And I think we love asking this question of all of our specialists as a bit of a wrap and a bit of a, you know, a pick of your brain of where you see things going, although you did say we can't prophesize. But imagine you're reading the headline of our fictional ASX Energy Digest paper at the beginning of 2024. What do you think the headline's going to be? Pensioners and people looking for yield, you know, dividend hunters are going to start looking at coal miners as the next banks. I think the headline might look something like, coal miners are the new banks. You know, the, the banks are what the, the old folk go to to get their dividends. And I think coal is going to be that. That's where, you know, retirees are going to go to fund their dividends. And I think we're going to see years of high dividend paying from, from these maligned and, and neglected coal miners. The next tobacco. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I love, love talking to analysts because you always have a fresh perspective and so much data to back up the way you're thinking. And it's always so interesting to me to see how you interpret these price signals. And obviously, as you say, some of these bets pay out and coal is obviously a bit of a darling here, but always fascinating to hear how institutional research is going about 
making money in both cyclical markets. So thank you so much for coming on Big Swinging Stocks to chat with us. My great pleasure, Alex. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.